You're listening to the podcast for Asbury United Methodist Church. Join us every Sunday at 9 a.m. for small groups, 10 a.m. for worship, or anytime at asburybosier.org. Questions Jesus asked is where we begin. My children throughout their childhood have asked great questions. And if you're a parent, grandparent, guardian, teacher, you know that kids ask some amazing questions. Um, Isabel, my oldest, I remember her question, each of them have like a question that I remember, that I will remember forever from them. Uh, Isabel's question is, Daddy, why is yellow a silly color? Right? I'm not sure there's an answer to that, but why is yellow a silly color? Understand, she had already made the assumption that it was, right? Why is yellow a silly color? And that is so very Isabel. Then there's Anna Lee. Anna Lee, uh, I remember, and I've said, I've preached on this before, on our way home from downtown Friends, she asked me, why are they homeless? And I was assuming that she was asking me so that I might answer saying something like, mental health issues or economics or addiction issues. No, no, no. Her full question was, why are they homeless if you can do something about it? So her question was not, what's wrong with them? Her question was, what's wrong with me? And that is so Annalie. And then we have Robert, Mr. Robert, who I'm not sure if he's ever actually listening or not because he like plays with cutlery and um, uh, I'm just, yeah, I'm just not sure he's listening. I'll just, I'll leave it at that, right? I'm just, he's in kind of another planet. But he is a, he is a fact machine. He loves facts. Uh, not long ago, uh, during bath time, he said, Dad, did you, he's a did you knower, right? Dad, did you know that the reason blueberries are blue is because of the tannins? What the, f- I- I know I didn't know what a tannin was until I was at a wine tasting in my 30s. Because of the tannins? Are you kidding? And he says these these crazy things, and I'm not sure quite if he's listening or not. Or like, um, (laughs) so he, um, the other day, uh, Wally, or or not not that Wally, but our Wally, we named our dog after Wally. Just, it's, it's a thing, it's fine. So Wally, our dog, was like, he loves to hunt, uh, mosquito hawks are out now, right? You know, the big, you know, and he loves to like, just real slow, creep and find, I was like, Robert, Robert, look, 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 and dad's, and, and then Robert said, that's predation. So he's a predator. Like, who are you? <laughs> I texted his teacher uh, uh, this morning, Miss Wilburn, uh, Katie Wilburn, I texted her this morning, like, you're doing a great job. <laughs> he's using words I'm not sure I know. Like, this is incredible. But the one who takes the cake, and if you are friends with me on Facebook for any length of time, you know this. You know this story. Lady Cecilia is the best with her questions. My favorite of all time. And actually, it wasn't a question she asked, it was my response or her response to what I had said. We're sitting, I used to do a thing called Mornings with Cecilia because we had a couple minutes uh, to kill before ARC, uh, the ARC started and ARC registration is today. And uh, before the ARC started, uh, she was in my office and I asked her, you know, what is your favorite, what's your favorite food? And she said, apples. And I said, uh, I said where, where do you think apples come from? 
And she said, mm, I think they come from Chick-fil-A. <laughs> and I said, you know, you might be right. And then this child, this sweet, innocent, three-year-old child leaned in, leaned in and looked me dead in the face and said, I am right. <laughs> and then in the background, I heard, right? Like I'm going to wake up with a unicorn horse head in my bed in the morning if I don't give her like exactly what she wants. Just so that you might experience this together all at the same time, take a look at this. Where do apples come from? I think they come from Chick-fil-A. Apples come from Chick-fil-A? Yeah. Yeah, I think you might be right. Um, I am right. <laughs> she leaned in so that I could hear it. I am right. And then she gave me like the side eye. Did you see that? She like gave me like, come on. Questions. So question, and that's very, if you know Lady C, that's very Cecilia. Right. I'm certain, I've, told, I've said this before, I'm certain like if I go to the HOA and have a problem with something, I'm going to say, who's in charge here? And then the chair is going to turn around, right? It's going to be Cecilia stroking a cat, you know. <laughs> Hello, Faja. You know. Questions reveal a lot about who is asking it, right? It says, it not even, completely independent of the question itself, it reveals something of, of who you are. Isabel's question, why is yellow a silly color? Only folks who are interested in art would ask that kind of a question. Why is yellow a silly color, right? And Annalise's question, why are they homeless, right? Is someone who has compassion and loves to serve. They have a servant kind of language, right? And, and Robert's question reveals that he is curious about the world, right? And then Cecilia, she just wants everyone to know that it's her world and she, by grace, is allowing you to live in it. So questions that we ask reveal a lot about who we are, but also our answer to those questions reveals something about who we are. So if Isabel says, why is yellow a silly color? And I say, it's not. Like that says something about me. Or if I, if I do the therapist, the therapist thing where, why is yellow a silly color? I don't know. Why is yellow a silly color to you? Why does it make you feel silly? Like those kind of things. Or the best yet, why is yellow a silly color? I don't know, babe, but wait until you meet Periwinkle, because it is a party, right? Questions and answers reveal a lot about who we are, completely independent of the questions and the answers themselves. Do you see that? Questions and answers reveal a lot about who we are, regardless of the actual question and answer. Questions uh, and answers, questions in particular, fall into several different categories. The first category of question, and if there are any um, six-year-olds or younger earmuffs, I'm going to say the S word. Some questions are stupid. Stupid questions, right? A stupid question is a question in which an answer is not desired. Or, as my mother would say, someone just wants to hear their head rattle. Do you know these people? Do these people like after a lecture, like if you're in a classroom and they, they raise your hand like, so what you're saying is, and they repeat exactly what the teacher just said, like, that's a stupid question. They're, they're not really interested in the answer. They're interested in everyone recognizing like how smart they are. That's a stupid question. Or it's like, um, hypothetically speaking, absolutely hypothetically speaking, you throw away the, the, the new limited edition Oreos 
in, in the trash and you have an Oreo in your hand and you're eating it and your wife says, did you just eat the last cookie? What a stupid question. I didn't say that. I, I, obviously, obviously, I just threw the thing, I have the thing, I have a cookie in my mouth. Like, it's just, yes. Or, or, several years ago when I was in college, uh, I went to the Mississippi State game. Uh, went with a couple of friends, went down to Stark Vegas and uh, LSU Mississippi State. And on the way home, uh, I was distracted. I won't tell you why, but uh, I was driving with my Chevy Blazer and I rear-ended a truck in front of me. And fair, four very large humans got out of that truck. So after changing my clothes, I finally composed myself. Like my, like their truck was fine. They, they, it's so funny, like they, they all like got out of the truck. They looked at their hitch. And like, my, like now my bumper was like totally like hugging it. Like it was just like, you know, the Chevy Blazer bumper could not hold up to the trailer hitch, right? So um, I eventually get home uh, overnight and I park in the street uh, in my house in, in Slidell growing up and my mother in the morning, she said, what happened to your car? What? What? <laughs> and she goes, it looks like someone, someone hit it. I said, someone must have come in the night. I mean, I parked on the street. And my mother, <laughs> she says, you mean to tell me someone last night drove, saw your car, passed it, stopped, put it in reverse, backed into the car with an obvious trailer hitch, and then drove off. <laughs> I said, you know, we should mention that to the insurance company. It's just, look, when your mama asks you a question, she knows that, this is a pro tip. It's a pro tip. If your mama asks a question, she knows the answer. She's just giving you a moment to confess. That's all that is. What happened to your car? Whoa, what? What are you talking about? Stupid questions. There are such a thing as stupid questions. Now, stupid questions typically are meant to entrap, to shame, or to puff up the ego. And they're bad questions. Bad questions, they're stupid questions. And there's a word for this, by the way. Uh, it's a Sanskrit. I was in New Orleans this past weekend uh, and I heard Pastor Sean Anglum preach. He's just, a, I mean, he's like, he's a monk, but he's also like super weird. Like he's a small little weird man. Um, and he, he, I heard him preach, it was fantastic. He was talking about questions. He says, you know, there is such a thing as a bad question. There's a word for that. It's a Sanskrit word and it's mu, M-U, mu. And what it means is recall the question. And the example he gave was, does a dog know the gospel? It's the kind of question where whether you say yes or no, it's not, it's not quite correct. Now, yes, a dog knows the gospel in the sense that, I mean, do that like seven, the seven to one ratio, like dog, dog years, right? You know, you've, you've heard that before, like one year of our life is seven years for a dog's life. Another way to think about that is that every day that you live, the dog is trying to get a week's worth out of you, right? The dog is always by your side. It greets you in, in, when you leave and, and when you come back and wants to play fetch. And they're trying to get a week's worth of stuff into that one day because that's all they have. They don't waste time, right? That sounds like the gospel to me not wanting to waste time with the people that we love, right? 
But like, can a dog say the Apostles' Creed, right? It's just, it's kind of a silly, it's kind of a silly question. You know, are dogs in heaven? Well, if you love dogs, then dogs are in heaven. Cats aren't. (laughs) Call me a liar. (laughs) Moo. It's a bad question. Whether you say yes or no, it doesn't quite fit. Right? For example, Jesus and the Sadducees. The Sadducees had a question uh, for Jesus. This is Mark chapter 12 verses 18 through 27. It'll be on the screens. It goes like this. Some Sadducees who say there is no resurrection came to him and asked him a question saying, teacher, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies, leaving a wife, but no child, the man shall marry the widow and raise up the child for his brother. Then there were seven brothers. The first married, and when he died, left no children. And the second married her and died, leaving no children. And the third, likewise. None of the seven left children. Last of all, the woman died herself. In the resurrection, whose wife will she be? For she had seven, the seven had married her. Jesus said to them, Is not this the reason you're wrong? That you know neither the scriptures nor the power of God? For when they rise from the dead, they neither marry nor are given in marriage. But they're like angels in heaven. And as for the dead being raised, have you not read in the book of Moses in the story about the bush how God said to him, I am the God of Abraham. I am the God of Isaac. I am the God of Jacob. He's not a God of the dead, but of the living. And you are quite wrong. In other words, what Jesus told the Sadducees is, that's a stupid question because you don't even believe in the resurrection. And by the way, who does the woman belong to in the afterlife? God. Or, when Jesus was sitting with Pilate during Jesus' trial, and Pilate says, what is truth? Do you know this? Right? Jesus is with Pilate. They bring him in. They're talking. And Pilate says, what is truth? Jesus says, nothing. In essence, Jesus says, moo. Regardless of how I answer this question in your presence, the context is not right. You're not going to understand. My kingdom is not of this world. It doesn't play by the same rules as Rome. Therefore, however I answer this question, it's not going to be quite right. And that is permission, friends. That is permission, friends. As Christians, you don't have to have an answer for everything. Nor do you have to have an opinion about everything. Facebook wants you to have an opinion about everything. You don't have to. If someone asks you a stupid question, just moo at them and they will leave you alone. I promise. Recall the question. It's not quite right. Our worship series uh, is based on a book, Questions Jesus Asked by McGray de Vega. Uh, and this, uh, the SALT class is actually doing another study by McGray de Vega right now. If you want to check out their Sunday school class, it's a great, I think they're doing Savior. Is that right? The, uh, the different images of the cross. Uh, you should check out their Sunday school class uh, if you want to know more. Uh, McGray de Vega, uh, he divides questions into three categories. Factual, interpretive, and evaluative. Right? So these are kind of three flavors of questions. He was too nice to have a section on stupid questions, but I hope in the second printing I can encourage him to add that. Factual questions, they're who, what, when, why, where, like trying to find out information, right? And Jesus asked these kinds of questions too. At the feeding of the 5,000, Jesus said, how many baskets are left over? 
He was walking through a crowd and he said, and a woman touched the hem of his garment. He said, who touched me? Informative questions, right? Robert Rawl kind of questions, right? Did you know that blueberries are blue because of the tannins? You know, what? But then there are interpretive questions. And these are the questions that invite us to dig uh, deeper into why they're being asked what kind of answer is designed? What's the context? Remember, uh, we had talked earlier in the beginning of the year, it depends on what lens we're using in terms of answering a question. The difference between the Hubble telescope and the James Webb Space Telescope, they're taking the same image but in different ways, and therefore we learn different things. Those are interpretive questions. And Jesus asked these too when he healed a man, and, the, and, he, and he said that your sins are forgiven, and the Pharisees were very upset about this, only God can forgive sins. Jesus said, okay, well, what's easier to tell the man that his sins are forgiven or take up your mat and go? And they had no answer. So Jesus said, take up your mat and go. And he did. Interpretive questions. And then there are evaluative questions which foster reflection. It's not so much that you're asking a question, you're wondering what it means to you. What does this mean? What answer, how will I adopt and adapt that answer that I give? Which is the focus of the study? Who do you say that I am is where we begin. Other questions like, why are you anxious? Why do you fear? These are questions that elicit reflection. Maybe there's not one answer to this. So, we start with, who do you say that I am? And it's Luke chapter 19, verses 18 through 27. It'll be on the screens, it'll be online, and it's also in your Bible or your Bible app. Let us hear the word of the Lord. Once when Jesus was praying alone with the other disciples near him, he asked them, who do the crowds say that I am? They answered John the Baptist, but others, Elijah, and still others that one of the ancient prophets have arisen. He said to them, but who do you say that I am? Peter answered, the Messiah of God. Then he sternly ordered and commanded them not to tell anyone, saying, the Son of Man must undergo great suffering and be rejected by the elders, chief priests, and scribes, and be killed, and on the third day be raised. Then he said to them, uh, then he said to them all, if any want to be my followers, let them deny themselves, take up their cross daily and follow me. For those who want to save their life will lose it. Those who lose their life for my sake will save it. What does it profit them if they gain the whole world, but lose or forfeit themselves? Those who are ashamed of me and of my words of them, the son of man will be ashamed when he comes in his glory and the glory of the father and the glory of the holy angels but truly, I tell you, there are some standing here who will not taste death before they see the kingdom of God. Jesus finds himself in a rather deserted place. 
to ask this question. Now, not so in Matthew and Mark. If you read this, uh, Sunday afternoons we do Jesus and the Gospels where we're comparing Gospel stories with each other. In Matthew and Mark, the story is quite different. They're actually traveling to a location. Jesus is very busy. He is asking this question in the midst of busy. And sometimes those are good questions to ask while you're running and going. And in the midst of crazy, you ask yourself, like, what am I doing here? That question that Elijah heard when he went up the mountain. What are you doing here, Elijah? It's a great question to ask. But in Luke, Luke knows the beauty of that silent place where we ask the hard questions. A place that is silent and a place where there is no fear of silence. Like we're standing at the bed in the hospital when someone is suffering. There is no time for lies. There's a lot of honesty. There's a silence that leaves room for hard questions. So Jesus is in a silent, deserted place. Well, it says that he was alone. It says that he was alone with the disciples. Do you know that feeling? Do you know the feeling when you're with others and yet somehow you're removed or thinking about something else or you're detached and, and finally someone says, no, but what do you think about the salmon? And you're like, well, what? Right? You are with, but also alone. This is where Jesus is when this question bubbles up. What a beautiful and biblical way to discuss how hard questions come to be. He was alone with the disciples. That means he was with them, but there was something bubbling. And then he finally breaks the ice by saying, who, who does the crowd say that I am? Now understand, when Jesus is asking this question, he's not asking for a survey. He's not asking for a job performance review or like, what are the reviews? Like, what are the comments? Like, if he, had, if he had social media, he would know exactly what the crowds think of him, right? Never read the comments, ever. Never read the reviews. Um, I don't. Uh, I mean, uh, several years ago, when the first book came out, The Faith of a Mockingbird, I read the reviews. And that's deadly to the soul, Right? Someone gave me a one-star review on Amazon because I called a clock a timer. And to that I would say, if you had twins and a hobby, you wouldn't have time to meddle. The world would be different if people had twins and a hobby. I'm just saying, there wouldn't be time to get into nonsense. Never read the comments. Jesus is not asking them, do they approve of me? Or are, are, are they liking what I'm doing? Who do the crowds say that I am? What he's doing is he is leaning into a moment of clarity that he's trying to get the disciples to. He's leading them into a singular answer. Who does the crowd say that I am? And they say Elijah and John the Baptist or someone come back from the dead. You know, this kind of, they're, they're, they're like, they're fishing. They don't, they don't quite know how to, it's like when, when you're with someone like at a wine tasting, like oh, I taste currant and, and oak finish and Aren't these amazing tannins? Like they're kind of like all over the place of what, of what this is. And that happens when, that happens when you can't quite describe something. It's new to you, right? McGray de Vega in his book, he talks about, this is like what's happening here are like two different circles on top of each other. There is the circle that contains all that you know. But there's another circle in that is how you know to describe what you know. Your ability to, so if I were to say, um, don't forget to put the candles on the cake, 
What am I talking about? A birthday party, right? I didn't have to explain it. I give you very little clues. That means the circle of what you know is a lot bigger than how to explain something, right? That, that circle is very small, right? And throughout our life, those circles get bigger and smaller as we journey through this one crazy thing we call life. But when that circle of, of how to explain something exceeds the circle of what we know, we have problems. Have you ever met a two-year-old or a three-year-old? People say it's, they say it's terrible twos. What they don't, pro tip, what they don't tell you is that there are tyrannical threes right after the terrible twos, right? No one tells you that, right? The terrible twos and the tyrannical threes are because their experiences exceed how they can explain it. They now have preferences and desires. They like banana and not squash, but they can't tell you that. So they get aggravated and upset and they throw stuff, <laughs> you know? Same thing with us. When, when that circle of how we can describe something is not informed by what we know, that's when we start talking and we don't really know what we're talking about. We start making stuff up and it's, it's like sharing an article on Facebook without reading the article on Facebook, you know what I'm saying? Problems happen when we start talking about what we don't know about. So stop it. <laughs> Make sure those circles are together. That's what's happening. Who do the crowd say that I am? Uh, Elijah, um, gosh, do you, uh, a prophet come back from the dead? Or, I mean, maybe, maybe John the Baptist. Here's the, kind of, here's the secret of this. Is it really the crowd? Are, are the disciples answering what the crowd thinks of Jesus? Or are they trying to get the right answer? And then it cuts to the chase. No, no, well, well, okay. Who, and, and Jesus doesn't belittle or say you're right or say you're wrong. He just moves on. He goes, okay, who do you say that I am? And then Peter says, you are the Messiah of God. And Jesus says, yeah, don't tell anybody that. What a curious way to respond to that. But then he talks about the Son of Man. The Son of Man is going to suffer and die and be raised, right? Now, in Matthew's, this is in Luke. In Matthew's gospel, it's a little bit different. This interaction between Jesus and Peter uh, is just a touch different. Uh, let me find that. That is um, Matthew chapter 16, verse 17 through 20. I think that might be on the screens. Uh, it says, And Jesus answered Peter, Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth will be loose in heaven. Then he sternly ordered the disciples not to tell anyone that he was the Messiah. But in the Gospel of Luke, Peter says, you are the Messiah of God. And Jesus says, yeah, don't tell anybody that. Why? Well, in this story of Luke, what Luke is trying to present is the danger of talking about what you don't know about. Jesus has not yet defined what Messiah is. So if you start telling people that I'm the Messiah, they're going to put a sword in my hand and they're going to want me to overthrow Rome. Hey, Peter, you're right. Not yet. Not yet. He then identifies himself with the Son of Man. The Son of Man will suffer and die and on the third day be raised. But then he moves on very quickly 
to what our responsibility of that identity is. And it's because Jesus is not really asking a question about himself, as if they're trying to pass it. Why do we keep thinking that our relationship with God and Jesus is, is like passing a test, like saying the right things and doing the right things so that we get, some, get the reward? Because Jesus would have had, Jesus, if that were what was happening here, Jesus would have said, who do you say that I am? Peter says he, that you're the Messiah. Then Jesus would have sat them down and said, yes, that's right. According to the Nicene Creed, I am fully human and fully divine. My mother is the Theotokos, the mother of God. Uh, and uh, understand that, that the spirit proceeds from both the father and the son, the filioque closet. He would have sat and had a theological discussion with them. That is not what happens. He goes, yeah, you're right. I'm the Messiah. And if you want to follow me, you're going to have to carry a cross. In other words, Jesus was much more concerned with how they were treating people than whether their doctrine was right or not. Doctrine is important. Theology is important. If we get our theology wrong, then the way we treat people will also be wrong. Our theology is very important because it affects how we do and how we are and how we, how we be. But it's not more important than loving your neighbor. At least... It doesn't seem so to Jesus. Because instead of like unlocking with them the mysteries of the universe, he says, oh, by the way, you're going to be following me to Jerusalem. If you want to follow me, you have to lose yourself. You have to deny yourself. You have to carry a cross. I'll go first. I'll go first. But you're also called to follow. It's a moment, and I would add this, that uh, I would add a category of question, because we have factual, interpretive, evaluative, stupid. I would add um, a question that, that changes us, a question that moves us into a new place, a transformative question. Ultimately, this is a transformative question. It is asking us to carry a cross. It is asking us not to remember church. The, the, the definition of church we're working with this year is, is church is the embodied confession that Jesus is Lord. In other words, it doesn't matter so much what you say as what you do with that saying, right? Church is the embodied confession. It is our confession that Jesus is Lord with skin on it. What does that look like in the world? It is an embodied confession where we wrestle with God and neighbor. That is church. It is the embodied confession that Jesus is Lord where we wrestle with God and neighbor. Lent is a time for transformative questions. It is a time, as I say, Lent is a resolution revolution. You think New Year's is about resolutions, making resolutions. Lent truly is about dissolving the things that get in the way between us and God. That's the difference between a solution and a resolution, right? A solution solves problems like let me talk about Miss Wilburn again. Like when, when, when Robert came home with like a huge bag of Valentine's Day candy, right? And he's sitting at the table as if he's never eaten before in his life. And there's like paper everywhere, like all this. And I'm like, hey, Robert, you need to slow down, buddy. You're going to get a stomachache, you know? What do I know? So like later in the day, he's just like, keep, and like, daddy, my tummy hurts. And what I wanted to say is like, see, chump, I told you. No, you solve the problem. You say, hey, man, Let's clean up, let's clean up, and then I think you need to lay down. That solves that problem. You want to resolve it? 
you take that bag and you put that junk up very high on the shelf. Problem resolved. That means there ain't going to be a problem anymore. Right? The solution is stop slamming doors, please. What's the resolution of that? <laughs> yeah. And you can't slam nothing. Right? Salute. Lent is not a time to solve problems. And maybe, I mean, solving problems is not a bad thing, right? If, if you're giving up chocolate for Lent or if you're putting bourbon down or if you're giving more to the church or if you're adopting a new tradition. The point of Lent is not to then pick up chocolate on Easter, right? Like, oh, thank God, I'm going to be like Robert Rawl now, blah, 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 right? You know, that was fun giving up bourbon for six weeks, so now let me binge on Easter, Right? That's, that's solving a temporary problem. And that, that's okay because sometimes some problems need to be solved. Sometimes you do need to put chocolate away for a while. And then, and then yeah, you can pick it back up on Easter. Yeah, it's fine. But Lent fundamentally is a time for resolution, which means I'm done with dark chocolate or whatever, right? I'm done ignoring the poor. Maybe I need to be done with bourbon too. It is a time of resolution where we're not solving the problems of the world, we're dissolving them. Can you imagine a world where there are no hungry (laughs) or homeless? Lent is a time to dissolve these things under the Lordship of Jesus Christ. So, question for you, because it's it's almost 11 o'clock, I'm so sorry. (laughs) Now everybody's like, oh dang. Yeah, just be nice to the Baptists who now have your chair at Nukes. It's fine. You know, you pray for them as you walk out. Um, what's your question that you're wrestling with? You know, Isabel's question is, why is yellow a silly color? Maybe you have a question that there's really no answer to. So maybe, maybe your job during Lent is to reframe the question because it doesn't make sense. Even if you ask it, you're not going to get where you need to be. Right? Maybe, that, maybe that's where you are. Or maybe, maybe, maybe... Why are they homeless, Dad, when you can do something about it? Maybe there's something in the world that you want to jump into, like, like our stock the shelves at the hub. Uh, that the Smith family <laughs> stocked the shelves of the, of the hub uh, last week. That's going to be an ongoing practice of Asbury, is stocking the shelves of the hub. And maybe, maybe that's your question, is how can I get more involved for those who are less fortunate? I say the Smiths and Tina. I think it was Smiths and Tina uh, who are there. Or maybe your question is more like Robert, and you're just trying to soak it up and learn. I need, Pastor, I need to learn more about Jesus. I need to learn more about my family. I need to learn more about how to navigate some of these issues. And maybe you're going to be a fact-finding machine like Robert, where you see an animal walking, you're like, that's predation. Like, how do you even, what? Or maybe you're like Lady Cecilia. And it is time for you to say to the world, no more. I need to step out. And I'm tired of being told who I am. It's my turn to decide that now. So that's your homework. What's your question? What are you wrestling with? How are you asking it? To whom do you need to ask it? May we experience a resolution, revolution for all of our questions. Not so that we find the right answer, so to speak, but so that we ask better questions.
In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Let us pray.